0: Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum apologetics lecture by Father Michael de Stoop on the topic Confession. This February 2009 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday evening apologetics lectures at St Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Father Michael de Stoop is the current parish priest of St Benedict's Broadway and the director of the Vocation Centre in the Archdiocese of Sydney. Um, just two weeks ago, I was asked to give a talk on this sacrament up in uh, Brisbane. Um, for those of you who are familiar with it here in Sydney, we have what's called theology on tap, and it's called theology on tap because it's literally theology that takes place in a pub. So you in a pub, you're used to having our, uh, you know, all kinds of all kinds of beer on tap. Well, it's a, it's a great a uh, great initiative because often when we try and preach the gospel. Um, it's not where young people are at, and so the theology on tap is a means by which we can go to where young people are, and there spread the gospel. Um, it's been very successful here in Sydney. They have hundreds of people turning up for it um, here at PJ Dalit's pub in Parramatta. They've had up to six or seven hundred people turning up uh, um, every uh, first Monday of the uh, of the month. Or was it the or someone Monday, first Monday. First, yeah, first Monday of the month. Um, now in Brisbane they have something similar called Faith on Tap. They basically basically uh, uh, followed on with, with the suit with what's going on here in Sydney. And after giving the talk, I was most amused because um, the MC of the night, James Champion did a great job up there. Um, he said we're very proud to they had other priests who were there that night, and he pointed to one priest in the quiet corner, and he said we're very proud to announce here on, on Faith on Tap that we now have confessions on tap. And <laughs> there was a priest up in the corner and he was making himself available for the sacrament. I thought I'd just start with that. I thought it was quite uh, quite funny. And uh, he said, you can look under your seats and if you find a big S, S for sinner, you can be the first to go. And he said, oh, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. Um, but, uh, but it's good to see that... Um, I'm sharing this with you because while we might be discouraged with a decline in people receiving the sacrament of reconciliation, um, uh, it's encouraging to see that uh, uh, it's now becoming more fashionable, um, uh, young people especially becoming more devoted to it, and also in the least of all places that we would expect. It's a heavy topic, so I thought I might just start with a, uh, a true story. And uh, it is a true story, and that's what makes it all the more remarkable. Um, And as you'll soon see, uh, funny. Um, When you go into uh, the confessional, the traditional confessional, you've got one door for the priest, and you've got a separate door for the penitent. This particular penitent penitent was was, uh, quite confused, because he reached for the wrong door. He opened the priest's door, not the penitent's door. And so both the priest and the penitent were quite uh, embarrassed because when he opened the door and looked in, the priest there is dressed in his stole, He's looking up as if to say, "What are you doing?" No? Um, and the penitent himself was embarrassed because I oh, sorry, the priest um, yeah, <coughs> himself was embarrassed because then of course you know he had to let this guy die, this 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 guy realise um, the mistake he had, made, he, had, he had made. But luckily the priest was someone who had a quick wit because this penitent he said, "Oh." Uh, um, is, is this the uh, is this the exit? And the priest said, uh, "No, mate, it's the viruscope." <laughs> <laughs> you may have also heard about these men who were in the IRA, and uh, one of them, uh, his conscience was getting to the better of him, and so he turned to his colleagues in the IRA and he said, "Look." Uh, don't you realise what we've been doing is really immoral? I mean, it's, it's it's really wrong. We've shed so much blood. We really should go and wipe the slate clean and start it over again. And his mate said, well, how do you propose to do that? He said, well, come on, we're Catholics. We really should go to confession. And they said, well, we'll do it, but so long as the dairy goes first. So sure enough, he went to the church, he went to the, into the confessional, and then he came out and he had this sort of shocked look on his face. And so his colleague said, well, what happened in there? What did the priest say? And he said, you wouldn't believe it. Said, what do you mean you wouldn't believe it? What happened in there? He said, well, when I told the priest that we have just recently blew up 20 kilometres of railway tracks, he said, hmm, uh, well, for your penance, go and do the stations. <laughs> um, all right, I thought I'd share some stories, other stories. Too. The, 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 these stories are, are true. I'm not too sure if that last one uh, is, but uh, the, the first one I told you indeed is. Um, this story is uh, is also true. It, takes, it took place here in Australia in one of the country towns. Um, country towns don't always have the luxury that I know I had in my first appointment. My first appointment was in Liverpool, and the hospital was walking distance away. This particular priest, he went to bed late at night. He had a big day, and uh, in going to bed, um, not not long after, um, around about midnight, um, the uh, the buzzer went off. He got called to the hospital. It was a sick call. Someone was dying, and uh, it was some distance away. But but add to that, it was pouring rain, torrential rain, and so it was almost as if someone was pouring milk all over his windscreen. The rain was hitting his windows. That heavy, he couldn't see where he was going, so he had to drive painstakingly slow, uh, slowly. And so it took him two hours to get to the hospital. The whole time when he was driving, he's thinking to himself, I wonder if this person will still be alive when I get there. Anyway, he finally gets there, he was greeted by the nurses and they assure him that he's still alive, but that he is indeed on his last legs. So he goes straight up to his bed, and after spending some time uh, with him, and giving him some words of comfort, he uh, he then realizes he needs to come to the chase. And so he says, "Look, you're gonna you're gonna die tonight. Do you want to make your peace with God?" And he said, "Oh, Father," he said, "God would not forgive me for what I have done." And so if he, the priest said to him, "Well, what makes you think that? Isn't God someone who is an all-loving and all-forgiving Father?" He said, oh father, he said, I'm just too ashamed. And this, 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 this man, um, although he was dying, he had the strength to shake his head as he was saying it. And so he said to him, look, it's taking me two hours to get here. He said, I've got to call at midnight. It's two o'clock in the morning. um, it's pouring rain. What makes you think that I'm going to just turn around, get back in my car, drive back home and go to bed? knowing that I've done nothing for you. He said, at least tell me a story. What happened? He said, oh, Father, he said, many years ago I was a train driver. (coughs) And he said, it was Christmas Day, I was enjoying some drinks with my family at home. I wasn't rostered on to drive a train, so I I thought I could relax on uh, this significant occasion. But someone rang up from work. I was told that someone had rung in sick. And that I had to replace him. And for want of judgement, for a lack of discretion, I drove that train. And he said, Father, you said, if I was, if I had all my faculties, I'm sure what happened would not have happened. And the priest said, well, what happened? He said, look, there was a car that had broken down on some railway tracks. And had I had all my senses I would have been able to see the car while I was still at a great distance I didn't see it until the last second and well father the train just went smashing right through that car and it killed every person in that car and so the priest said to him well don't you think that God's forgiveness is even greater than that sin that he has the capacity to forgive you and he said What makes you think that, Father? And no sooner had he said this, in his words of disbelief, he saw tears rolling down the cheek of the priest. And the priest said to him, Look, not everyone was killed in that car. When that train smashed through the car, he said, I was but a little baby. And being tied to a child's constraint, I survived. And he said, you know what? I forgive you. And if I forgive you, don't you think that God just might forgive you? And consider who it is who's saying this to you. Was it not that our Lord he said to his apostles, those he called to be his priests, he who hears you, hears me. And he who hears me, hears the one who sent me. And you might recall how he also said to his apostles, the sins that you forgive, they are forgiven, and the sins that you retain, they are retained. And he said, I retain nothing. There's nothing for me to retain. I can see that you're truly sorry. So needless to say, this man, he died in God's peace and friendship that night. And I'll share this story with you because I think it demonstrates in a very powerful way the significance and merit of the Sacrament of Reconciliation, the Sacrament of Penance. Because it's in this sacrament that we don't have to rely upon any any subjective feeling that God forgives us. We know, as sure as our faith tells us, that our sins have been forgiven, that they're all gone, that we're all here with our own ears, that God forgives us. And there's tremendous peace and consolation that comes from that. Um Archbishop Forkman Sheen gives us the analogy of a tube of toothpaste. And he says, Well, if you keep the cap on on the, the tube of toothpaste and you then try to squeeze and press down upon that tube of toothpaste, he said, 'What's What's going to happen? Of course the toothpaste is going to come out at a place where it's not supposed to. And, of course, that speaks, of course, of the uh, the, the weight of the burden of our, of our guilt and our, our own sinfulness upon our shoulders. And if it, don't, if it doesn't find the right place to come out, it will come, kind of come out in all kinds of psychosis uh, and neurosis. It will come out in all kinds of trouble spots uh, in our lives. And if it doesn't come out in those kind of things, we will at least suffer from such things as self-hatred and discouragement, and so on and so forth. And uh, that being the case, then the devil has us exactly where he wants us, because our sins are only going to perpetuate if we uh, if we uh, are discouraged as such. But take that cap off, then the toothpaste comes out at the place uh, where it is intended. And of course, the Archbishop Fulton Schiene gives that analogy um, in keeping with the Sacrament of Reconciliation, that being the place where God intends us to heal to to receive His not only His mercy, but the healing um, effects of the, of the sacrament. I'm just wondering if I should tell another story before I go on um, to some things we can glean from the scriptures. Um, it's also a story which is related to us by uh, Archbishop and It's about um, some young men and. Boys will be boys. They were always encouraging each other to do all kind of uh, rebellious kind of things. And um, they were walking past the church, and one of them turned to his friends and to his mates, and he said, "Let's go in there and just um, cause a stir amongst all those people who are going to confession." So they went up to all the people going to confession, and they're saying, "Ooh!" Ooh, you're going to see the priest who got sins to confess. All all kinds of things like this to try to embarrass them and make mockery of them, all this kind of stuff. One of them was even so uh, uh, rebellious as to go into the confessional box. And um, he said, Oh, oh, Father, I've sinned, but I don't give a start. And so the priest, um, he said to him, Well, I'll tell you what, for your penance, I want you to go up onto the sanctuary, just kneel at the base of the sanctuary, and look up at the crucifix and tell our Lord what you've just told me. So he came prancing out of the confessional. Uh, he made a beeline for the, uh, the sanctuary, he knelt down on the step of the sanctuary, he looked up, he shook his fist and he said, you died for me, but I don't give up! He couldn't finish what he's prepared to say. He was so touched by the love of Christ. And that's also something which, of course, is a great merit of the Sacred Reconciliation. <coughs> because it's here that our misery meets mercy. If you try to separate misery from mercy, what happens? When I say misery, I'm talking about the whole sense of our human experience of what it is to know our own sinfulness. The misery of our shame and our guilt and our sense, our sense of, uh, of a need for God's uh, God's love and His healing. <coughs> and of course we all understand what God's mercy is. If we separate mercy from misery, what happens? Well, let's take a person who has a sense of misery, his own guilt. But he has no understanding of the Lord's mercy. Well, if he has a sense of his own misery, that's going to lead him to despair. If a person has an understanding of Christ's mercy, but you take this person is not aware of his own misery. Perhaps he's become uh, insensitive to sin over time, and uh, his conscience is no longer something which is in tune with uh, uh, with the commandments and with the love of Christ. Well, such a person who might have an understanding of God's mercy, but no understanding of his own misery, well, that leads to presumption. Oh, well, God will forgive me. You, you know. He, he knows what I'm going through, or, or what have you. But if you take mercy, and you put that, so you take our own misery, and you and you place that at the foot of the cross, it's there that misery meets mercy. And that's the encounter that we have in the of reconciliation. It's an encounter with Christ. All right, there's a middle man involved. But Christ is there in the presence of the priest. And certainly from my experience, the more transparent I am, the more transparent the better of Thomas is the priest transparent in the sense that we can see see through him and and recognise Christ. That Christ is one who we encounter and it's there that our, our, our misery uh, meets his mercy. Speaking of meeting Christ's mercy, I'll go on now to, <laughs> just to unpack the parable of the prodigal son. Now before you switch off and go, oh yes, we've all heard this parable many times before, We know what it's all about. Okay, click. Let's just switch it back on because I want to share with you something which we may not notice uh, to begin with, something which we may notice in the immediate sense. Because sometimes we can read the scriptures and we can read them over and over again. We might even take them to prayer. And certain things don't jump out at us, whereas other times they do. (laughs) I'll share with you one thing which uh, I'd like to um, unpack about this parable. Before I do, I want to raise the question. Do you think it is anywhere in the parable, anywhere related to us? Because we understand that the father of the prodigal son represents God the father. Do you think it's related or communicated to us in any way, shape or fashion that God wants to forgive us even before we ourselves want to be forgiven? Do you think that's actually communicated or conveyed to us in that parable? You might say, well, where does it say that, bro? Well, it's there in a very beautiful way. We can see that when the prodigal son is on his way back to his father, he's coming to his senses, he comes back, um, he wants to uh, make amends to his father, he doesn't really understand the love of his father because he comes back thinking, well, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Um, but, you know, treat me as one of your highest servants and I'll try and make it up to you. So he's thinking that he can earn the love of his father. But that love of his father is still there. In fact, he wants to forgive his son, even before his son wants to, wants to be forgiven. Why? Because Jesus tells us that the father saw him while he was still a long way off. That's what Luke tells us in his Gospel. Now, to put that in modern language... That means that the, the father of the prodigal son wasn't sitting in luxury on his nice couch watching TV in the comfort of his own home or doing other, any, other, any other kind of thing um, within the, uh, uh, the comfort of uh, his own house. Why? Because he still saw him while he was, uh, he saw him while he was still a long way off. So, if he was able to see him as such, it must have meant that he was in the habit of scanning the horizons for the first sign of his son's return. I think that's always something which helps us to have a greater appreciation for the mercy that we receive in the sacrament of penance, Knowing that we, uh, we have an opportunity to encounter the love of Christ in the ministry of the priest in such a fashion that God's been waiting there for us, even before we've thought of, oh, I should go to confession. And that, that I think is a, a very encouraging way of looking at things. We might also look at what happens when the, uh, after the after the, the father of the prodigal son runs up to him, embraces him, and kisses him. First of all, he says to his son, quick, put a robe on him. Now that's something which is great, has great significance because for a person, as we've seen in the Hebrew Scriptures, for a person to wear a robe, that, that robe is consistently, as we've seen in the Scriptures, a sign of great dignity. For example, what happens when sin first comes into the world? Adam and Eve, they realise they're naked. They're ashamed of their, own, of, of their own nakedness. There's a sense of dignity that's been lost. We we see it also in uh, <coughs> in the uh, uh, the New Testament on a number of uh, a number of times, some of which, of course, are quite profound. We see it uh, um, well before we can go on there. We can see that the priests, the uh, the high priests that offer sacrifice, would have to wear a seamless linen tunic. They were dressed in a very special robe to offer their sacrifices. We also see it in the New Testament. In a number of places, for example, when uh, Jesus is giving the parable of the wedding feast. There's one man there, he's not wearing a robe. He says, well, how did you get in? You're not wearing a robe. So obviously this man lacks the dignity by which he is is uh, worthy of heaven. We see uh, uh, Jesus when he's arrested in the Garden of Bethesda. There's one man who races off, he runs off as a coward, the Roman uh, soldiers they uh, grab hold of him, but he gets away, not without losing his clothing. <laughs> you might recall the Gospels that tells us um, when he's trying to get away, to a the struggle. They tore off his clothes and he ran away naked. So we can see, insofar as this man runs away, as a coward, he's lost his uh, his dignity as a disciple of Christ. We also see that dignity, in so far as that dignity is lost, we see how Peter, he also has this sense in which his dignity is lost. He's denied Christ three times. What happens when he lays eyes on Christ? We see that Jesus, of course, while Jesus is there, this is after the resurrection, uh, Jesus comes along on the shore and he's there, he's um, lit a fire and he's preparing uh, some breakfast. The Apostle John is the first one to lay eyes on Jesus. And he says, it's the Lord. And so Peter, what does he do? He's here on the boat. He puts on his robe and he jumps into the water and swims to Jesus. You'd think he'd do the opposite. Take his robe off so he doesn't get wet. And then jump into the water and go up and greet Jesus. So obviously, he recognises Jesus' presence there at the shore. As an overwhelming gesture, by which he wants to reconcile Peter to himself. He's denied him. And he's there, and he wants to bring Peter back to himself. And so, with this sense in which his dignity is restored, what is he doing? He puts his robe back on. And it doesn't make sense for any other reason, given that he's just jumped in the water. And it's certainly consistent with the context of things, because there is Jesus having lit a fire. Perhaps he's there trying to remind um, Peter, Of how he had denied Christ three times while he was warming himself that night before a fire. And of course, three times he says to Peter, Do you love me? And three times he gives Peter the opportunity to make reparation for the times he's denied Christ. Here he is wearing his robe. his dignity is restored. It doesn't end there because we also see in the, uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 14 where Jesus says, Blessed are those whose robes are washed in the blood of the Lamb. We can make a special, uh, how would you say, a sense of that, in light of the baptism ceremony. When we are baptised, we are clothed in white. And the lovely prayer that's associated with the clothing of the white garment, the priest says this beautiful prayer when the child is clothed in white. He says, Bring that, bring that garment, uh, keep that garment unstained into the everlasting life of heaven. But the reality is, as we go through life, sure, we are washed pristine, um, squeaky clean at baptism, but the reality is, is we, uh, we make mistakes on the way. We, uh, fall into sin, and we offend the Lord, and, uh, our robe becomes stained. So, what could that mean when our Lord says, Blessed are those whose robes are washed in the blood of the Lamb. Well, here, of course, I'm sure he's speaking of the sacrament of reconciliation. It couldn't be anything else, because what happens when we're baptized? We're clean, we're pure, we're pristine. And that's when the robe goes on, and uh, we we enjoy that great dignity. So that needs to be washed. Of course, that's synonymous with the experience of our human life, of our need the Lord's forgiveness in the sacrament of reconciliation. Then you might recall that the prodigal father... Sorry, the Well, some people actually say that the father should be called the prodigal father, not the son. Why? Because prodigal means liberal. Um, the son is called the prodigal son because he was liberal in the way he was living. Liberal in so far as he was liberal with vice. But we could also say the the father is prodigal because he is prodigal, he's is liberal um, with his mercy. Um, there's no limit to uh, to his mercy. So far as the uh, we might argue that the son had no limit to his vice, the uh, the father has no limit to his mercy. So after saying to him uh, to his servants, "Quick, put a robe on him," he says, "Put a ring on his finger." Now for the Jews, a ring was a symbol of authority. So he was thereby saying, look, you're saying to me, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. But I want you to say otherwise. Look, here is a ring on your finger. You enjoy my authority of what it is to be a member of our family. Your dignity is restored and, well, son, welcome back to our family. And uh, it's through the authority I I have as the father of this family, that you can enjoy the life of this family. Now when we are baptised, we become a member of God's family. God being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we're able to participate in the very love that we find between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's something that we'll be able to contemplate for all of eternity. and so it's significant that here is the father saying to his son that, uh, you know, you, uh, you are now able to enjoy the life of, uh, of our family. We, uh, also see that the, the, uh, the prodigal, sorry, the, the father of the prodigal son, he says, and quick, put sandals on his feet. What might you think sandals represented to the mind of the Jew, the Jew of the day? Let me phrase that as another question. If you had no footwear, do you think that you would be able to walk wherever you like? Could you walk on hot sand? Maybe for a few seconds, but then you have to jump off it. Um, Could you walk on very rough and sharp stones? Well, you could, but not without leaving a bit of blood behind. Um, and you wouldn't again you wouldn't get you wouldn't get very far so the significance of wearing sandals of course the sandals for the Jews was a sense of freedom a tremendous sense of freedom you can walk wherever you like once you put those uh, those sandals on um, I suppose we can draw a, a line somewhere i mean you can't walk on water um, uh, like our lord did um, although we can make an exception to that i mean peter did so uh, if you believe in the incredible, I suppose you can argue, you can do the impossible. But the significance of this, again getting back to the point, <coughs> is that for the Jews, the, 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 the sandal was a symbol of, uh, of freedom. You might say, how did that relate to the Sacrament of Reconciliation? Well, of course, in the Sacrament of Reconciliation, it's a sacrament which, of course, is often being underrated. Because it's not just a means by which we can receive God's forgiveness. It's also a means by which we can receive Christ's healing and strength. And they are often things that we need when we fall into sin. Because when we fall into sin, it increases our proclivity to fall into the same sins again. Um, it's called habit. And uh, virtue is a habit too. And uh, um, uh, it's good for us to try to strive to uh, to form good habits. But insofar as when we form good habits, they stay with us. So do, so do bad ones. And they're things that we can struggle with due to the very nature of sin, because it's something which deceives, deceives us, and of course it uh, also appeals to our, our own human weakness. And so, given that human weakness, we need not just the Lord's mercy, we also need His strength. Let me put it to you this way: there are, and this might help clarify the significance of what it is that our our freedom is restored, or at least. Uh, our uh, freedom is uh, increased in some way. There are two types of freedom. Today's society and the media in general tries to make out there's only one form of freedom, and that form of freedom is seen to be license. I can do whatever I want. Okay, we might be able to argue that, that is the case. We 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 have free will. We can we can choose whatever we like. But we must also take into account that there is another kind of freedom. The first one we've just been contemplating is the, 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 uh, the free choice that we all have. But not all of us have freedom to choose. Now you might be thinking, OK, it's going to be philosophical, so let me give you an example. A man, goes, a man becomes addicted to poker machines. So when he goes into the pokies and he starts playing in the poker machines, He's exercising his free choice to start playing the poker machines. But once he starts playing the poker machines, the thought comes to his head, I really should stop this. I'm losing and I'm wasting a lot of money. But try and try, as he might, to try and peel himself away from the poker machines. Can you do it? We can't. He's totally governed by the addiction. And so he can't peel himself away from the poker machines. He's got free choice, he's exercised his free choice but he doesn't have freedom to choose when it comes to making this important choice. So it's in that sense that we can really understand that sacrament of reconciliation is an underrated sacrament because often people see it simply, solely and purely as an opportunity to have our sins forgiven. People go there with the the spiritual equivalent of going to see a dentist. And think, oh, okay, I've got a tooth. You go and see a dentist. I've got, got a tooth to be pulled out. And you go and see a priest. The guy i got see, oh, I've got a sin to be pulled out. But of course, it's not so much the things that are taken away from us. In this sacrament, there are also things that are given to us to help us in our Christian journey. And um, I'm not suggesting that's the only one. There are many things that uh, we can gain from the sacrament of reconciliation. Um, this book, of course, I've tried to help illustrate that. And I think my brother's done a great job of doing the front cover. I gave him the transcript and I said, can you think of an image of the front cover? And the book basically consists of 25 bite-sized chapters, each chapter focusing upon not, not what the sacrament takes away it so much, but what the sacrament gives us, the things that we benefit from the sacrament. I've shared with you one, the whole sense in which it helps us to uh, receive Christ's strength in those areas of struggle. I suppose we can talk about there in the terms of the sanctifying grace and the sacramental grace that we receive from the sacrament. Um, I certainly don't have time to divulge all 25 of those benefits, but for those of you who haven't read uh, the book, then um, perhaps that might be of some inspiration (coughs) to you. But that's certainly one of the benefits that we can look forward to um, insofar as what the sacrament of reconciliation affords. Um, It may not happen overnight, we might need to to come back and uh, to receive another top up of God's grace. Um, you might be able to relate to the parable, the, sorry, the um, the healing miracle that Jesus performed on one of the blind men he encounters in the Gospel. He uh, puts some spittle on his eyes and he says, "Can you see?" And he says, "Well, yeah, I, I can see, but um, um, I can see people, but they look like trees, <laughs> they look like trees walking." And so Jesus has to have another go. He doesn't say, "Well, that's it. Too late. Sorry, um, uh, you've, got, you've used up your uh, your, your chip. Um, there's none left. Um, uh, there's so there's nothing more that I can do. Nothing more that I can do for you." No, so he has another go. Of course, he uh, he brings his eyes back to uh, complete health. So when we are baptised, we're welcome into the church, um, uh, and uh, we are uh, become uh, members of God's family. What does a priest say? He doesn't say, "Well, you know, now as baptized Catholic, you're welcome to receive the other sacraments." And when it comes to confession, well, you've only got 50 chips. Make sure you don't use more than 50 because they will blow your chance. Um, that's not what uh, what we're told by the church. Um, so it can be assuring that uh, with the uh, the sacrament of reconciliation, um, it's a means by which we can, yes, receive God's forgiveness, but we can also receive top ups of God's grace particularly in those areas of struggle, where uh, we need to grow closer to Christ. I might share another story I shared with the young people there in Britain, and it's uh, a story of one young man, actually before I tell that story I might tell a different one. This is another story related to us by Archbishop Fulton Sheen. Those of you who don't know Archbishop Fulton Sheen, I'm sure you do, I mean Father Robert Slattery, uh, I'm sure he's quoted him many times here himself in this parish. Um, not only is uh, Archbishop Sheen a tremendously good storyteller, he's told a number of good stories on this sacrament, some of which I've shared with you in the book. I'll share with you one now which is not. Um, and that's a, it's a true story, and that's what makes it again all the more remarkable. Uh, one morning he opens the church, and the way to open the church was to go through the sacristy, come into the church and open the door from the inside. And so when he opened the door to the church... This body slumped down onto the floor. She'd been leaning against the door of the church. And so when he opened the door, there was this woman, and uh, she was quite evidently suffering from a hangover. So he said to her, look, um, you've been drinking. Men drink alcohol because they like the stuff. Women drink alcohol because they don't like something else. (laughs) What is it that you don't like? And um, she said, oh, Father, she said, I've been uh, I've been having relationships with, uh, with two men. And one of them found out. And now I'm in serious trouble. And uh, so, well, I've been drinking all night. And he said, look, um, can I get you a cup of coffee? And she said, oh, that'd be great, Father. So he went and gave her a cup of coffee. He sat down with her and he said, look, I can't spend much more time with you. I've got to go off now to uh, to, to do a few things. I'm not too sure what, they th- what those things were. Perhaps he had to celebrate Mass or uh, spend time himself in prayer. But he said, you come back in the afternoon and I'll show you a lovely Rembrandt in this church. And she said, okay Father, I'll come back, but I'll come back only if you promise me that you won't ask me to go to profession. <laughs> and so he said, okay, I promise you I will not ask you to go to the confession. So she came back in the afternoon <coughs> and he took us through the church and on his way to the Rembrandt that was painted, the painting um, a print, um, of uh, Rembrandt that was hanging up there in the church, he pushed her into the confessional. And then he said, I always keep my promises. So <laughs> he didn't ask her, of course, so he, uh, he pushed her. Um, the story doesn't end there. Basically what had happened is that uh, after giving her some encouragement and some guidance, um, helping her to get it back on the right track, helping her to establish good habits in prayer, what happened? She became a nun. So we can see the marvels of, of, of God's grace. And uh, so she is now a religious and a wonderful transformation that had taken place um, in her life. So, again, this demonstrates that the of reconciliation is not just simply about having sins taken off our shoulders, it's also a means by which we can encounter Christ and, of course, to receive all the assistance that we need to come closer to Him. Um, Alright, I'll so tell that story I had told the young fellows there in Brisbane. This is something which I um, have been through my own experience as a priest. And, uh, it was this young man who had come into the confessional. And you know how it is you can tell a person's attitude just from their, their um, intonation of voice. Because he came in and he said to, he said to me, uh, oh, oh father, um, what do I do? And um, I said to him, um, uh, well when's the last time you came come to confession? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, and he's just talking like this. And um I said, uh, can you remember the steps that are involved in coming to confession? And he said, uh, oh, not really. Um, you might have to uh, remind me, Father. And I said, well, before I do that, I said, why are you here? And he said, oh, Mum's outside. <laughs> she wants me to go to confession. And um, I said to him, okay, well, did you spend some time examining your conscience before you came in? Oh, no, Father, I'm alright. I don't think I have any sense. I think I'm pretty good. Um, And uh, he said, you know, I think I'm pretty pristine and clean, really. And I said, well, what if I just guide you to the commandments? You know, just um, just to see if there's anything that you may need to ask God for his forgiveness for. Oh, sure, Father. So I said to him, can you remember what the first commandment is? Oh, no. Um, So I said to him, well, the first commandment is that I am the Lord your God, and you shall have no other gods before me. So I said to him, Can you tell me that you are placing God before and above everything and everyone else? That God is the centre of your life. And that anything else or anyone um, who uh, are, are important to you are the very things that lead you closer to him. And he said, Oh, well, actually, Father, you got me on there. Um, well, not really. And so I said to him, well, do you want to ask God's forgiveness for sins in relation to the first commandment? Oh, yes, Father, thank you, yeah, okay, Yep. Yeah. I said, okay, well, the second commandment. And, uh, of course, taking him through the commandments was a, a, a good means of catechesis for him, because in taking him through the commandments, <laughs> it was a good means for him to be able to, not just to see himself... In relation to you know rules of the church, um, things have been given to us by Moses, um, that kind of stuff. But also a means by which he can encounter the the goodness of Christ, because when you think about it, when we we begin to size ourselves up with the commandments, they're not just rules that we're trying to uh, not just standards that we're trying to live by. They have everything everything to do with the goodness of God because these things are things that we understand that God would not do they give us an insight into the love of the Trinity himself and so I mean to give you an example what's the best way of knowing what dirty water is here I have a glass of water before me what, let's just say that this is dirty water what's the best way for me to know what dirty water is thank you all that. Take it to a lab, okay, all right. So a very scientific approach there. Um, but what if you've been drinking dirty water all your life and like the people who are drinking from the Ganges River in India and they've become immune to to all the, the filth in the water and they've become used to the taste of it, you know, and all that kind of stuff. What if you've been drinking dirty water all your life? What's the best way of knowing what clean water is? Exactly. When you taste clean water, or take another example, what's the best way of knowing what a dissonant note in music is? When you know what good music is. When you hear harmony. So if someone comes along and just bashes along indiscriminately on the piano keys, and you've never heard music before, we might say, "Oh, it's nice." But someone who's heard good music will say, "That's deplorable." <laughs> so of course, when we encounter the goodness of Christ. It's then that we come to know ourselves, and this is the wonderful transformation that I saw in this young man as I was taking him through the commandments. So I just make that point before I continue to take you through uh, the rest of the things that he experienced. So after that, of course, we shared with him the second commandment: "You shall not take the name of the Lord God your name in vain." And as soon as I said that, he said, "Oh, Father," he said, "I do it all the time." And um, I said, "Oh, how did it come about?" And you know, "Through bad company." Oh, yeah, father, all my mates say the same kind of stuff. So I gave him a bit of guidance there on how best he can uh, avoid such things in the future. I think one personal, personally, I think one good way of doing it is every time you hear someone else use the Lord's name in vain, it's a good idea just to pray for that person. Because if we don't, unbeknownst to ourselves, even on an unconscious level, um, you know, we can become affected by that and. Uh, Inadvertently, we might end up using the language ourselves. So, if we uh, pray for others to use the Lord's name in vain, it, it helps us to be more aware of what words we don't want to use ourselves. Then I shared with him the uh, the third month remember to keep the keep holy the Lord's day, the Sabbath day. So I said to him, Have you been coming to mass on the Sunday? Oh no, Father, I didn't know that was one of the commandments. And so I said to him, well, you might also recall how Jesus said, do this in memory of me. So yes, it is one of the commandments. And I said to him, well, do you want to ask the Lord's forgiveness for the times that, you know, you, uh, you've missed Mass? And he said, oh, yes, Father, yes, Father. I took to the fourth <laughs> commandment, honour your father and your mother. Oh, Father, I just had this huge fallout out with my mum last night. Now, that's why she said you've got to go to confession. <laughs> It's the fifth commandment, you shall not kill. Oh, Father, um, that's it, That's one sin I haven't committed. Um, and you see, I could almost sense as he was going, oh, phew, this is one of them that doesn't pertain to me. And so I said to him, hang on a minute, hang on a minute, wait a minute. I said, we need to understand the commandments in relation to the rest of the scriptures. Because the Ten Commandments are just a basic moral guide. Um, especially we need to turn to the things which our Lord had said. You might recall how our Lord had said, you have heard of old that thou shalt not kill, but I say to you that he who calls his brother a fool is worthy of hellfire. And so I basically explained to him that even though we not even though we have not killed a person who we have uh, uh, physically or emotionally or or uh, uh, verbally abused in some way, um, although we have not killed them, we've still killed their spirits. And so it's in that sense that it still relates to the Fifth Commandment, you shall not kill. And so, of course, she said, oh, well, I have sinned against that commandment after all. And I said, well, not only that one, but everyone else can we share with you? I said, you started off by saying that you know, you're all pretty, pretty, pretty squeaky clean. I said, we're only halfway through. Let me share with him the Sixth uh, the Commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And I said to him that usually the Sixth Commandment is uh, twinned with the ninth commandment because they what, what they both uh, express have one thing in common the ninth commandment being you shall not covet covet meaning to unlawfully desire you shall not covet your neighbor's wife and uh, he said to me oh well he said uh, uh, that's another commandment that i haven't committed oh, he said because um, i haven't committed adultery and i said well hang on a minute i said we also got to recall what jesus says here where he says well, you have heard of old that thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say to you that he who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed um, adultery in his heart. And uh, so he basically then he said, oh well, Father, he said uh, I do that all the time. He said I'm living with my, with my girlfriend, and uh, and uh, you know we've we've had all kinds of relations, and uh, I'm I'm thinking of her all the time. And so I said to him, well, would you like to receive God's forgiveness? Against the sixth and the ninth commandment. He said, Oh, he said, Yes, Father. And he, as he was saying yes, he was thinking to himself, Gee, uh, I can't believe whether he said this such in his own words, but I was picking it up there in his, in his uh, non-verbal communications, as if to say, Well, must we go on? We're only halfway through. <laughs> this kind of stuff. But later on, mind you, he actually said to me that he was finding this very helpful. I think it gets back to that point I said to you before. It's because he was able to have an encounter with the goodness of Christ. And wanted that goodness for himself. So then we shared the, the, uh, the seventh commandment, um, which I explain is often in likewise fashion twinned with the tenth commandment because they both have something in common too. The seventh being you shall not steal and the tenth you shall not covet your neighbour's goods. And so, uh, he said, oh father, he said, I've forgotten how many stuff, how many times I've taken stuff that's not my own. And so he was able to receive the Lord's mercy there too. The eighth commandment: You shall not bear false witness against your <coughs> against your neighbour. And he said, "Oh Father, many times I have lied." So as you can see, we took him through the ten commandments. Here he was saying to himself at the beginning, "Oh Father, I've got nothing to confess. I'm all pristine, and clean." And then he realised that he had um, something to ask God's forgiveness for for every one of the commandments. And then I could sense this whole sense of uh, of, of uh, relief, there's a great sigh, as if you think, ah, oh, wonderful, all these things are gone. And I said, well hang on a minute, not quite finished yet. I said to him, you said to me that you haven't been going to Mass. Are you prepared to start coming back to Mass? Because one of the things which pertains to have true sorrow is that we want to make amends. And I explained to him uh, that uh, for a person who had no desire to make any amendment, but how could he truly say that no, I'm sorry? And so I said to him, "Are you willing to come to mass every Sunday?" And he said, "Oh, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't think I can do that, Father." And I said, "But you are sorry about this, aren't you? You really want to receive the Lord's forgiveness?" And he said, "Well, if that's what it means," he said, "Well, I'll give it a go. I want to. I want to. I want to do that, Father. I want to. I want to be able to." Uh, to be forgiven from the Lord. And then I said to him, well, you also said you're living with your girlfriend. When are you moving out? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, oh no, Father, don't tell me I have to do that. And I said, well, well I, said to you, I told you before, you know, if you're truly sorry, then of course, consistent with being truly sorry, you need to be able to have a firm purpose of amendment. And uh, I said to him to have a firm purpose of amendment, that also means that we need to be able to avoid the occasions of sin, because if we remain in those occasions of sin, then of course, how can we say that we're truly sorry? We're playing with fire if we continue to, uh, uh, to to remain in such occasions. It took a quite a bit of encouragement at this, this point, as you can as you can uh, as you can imagine. But eventually, I brought him around to see the merit, for his own benefit too, as someone who's discerning his vocation, that it's always going a profit a person not to uh, to rush into things. Uh, not, well, even aside, the church is teaching here, which is consistent with the commandments, as you see. So giving that encouragement, it, there, it thereby meant that uh, he was only able to receive the Lord's mercy, but to also put the power of that mercy into effect, to receive the grace of the sacrament by which he can uh, make a new beginning. Now, it's one thing to say that we need to have a firm purpose of, a, of amendment. Some people ask questions, well, if we, have, if we have a firm purpose of amendment, does that mean that our profession has not been valid if we fall into the same sin again? Because if we fall into the same sin again, does that mean that we weren't truly sorry? Well, that's, that's not necessarily true, because to have, which certainly would be true if we uh weren't trying to avoid the occasion of sin because that's certainly not consistent with true sorrow. But if it's just through no fault of our own, through, through human weakness, then we can be assured that we have indeed received the Lord's forgiveness. Because we make a distinction between the firm purpose of amendment and the certitude of amendment. We can be certain within ourselves that we truly do desire to amend our lives, but we can't be certain that we will. We can't jump into a time machine, go into the future and check out whether or not we had responded to God's grace to such an extent that we never fell into that sin again. So it's important for us to understand that um, if we do fall into the same sin again, that we uh, uh, don't start thinking, oh, we're now getting all scrupulous and stuff, well, that means that maybe God, God, God didn't forgive you the first time. Um, one other thing we might mention on uh, on that particular point um, is that when we uh, receive God, the, the sacrament of reconciliation, Saint Thomas Aquinas said that um, according to the excellence of the dispositions that we have in receiving the sacrament, I'll explain what those dispositions pertain to in a moment. He said, according to the excellence of the dispositions we have in receiving the same, he said, if those those dispositions are are, are good enough, we can actually rise to a higher grace than we had before we had sinned. And he gives the, the wonderful example of Mary Magdalene, how, despite the fact that she was known for her shady past, was someone who, of course, is known now as a saint. Someone who grew in sanctity. Um, according to the, uh, or certainly in virtue, with her encounter with Christ um, and his mercy. So what are those dispositions? Well, of course, what St. Thomas Aquinas is referring to is the things I've shared with you already. Such things as having uh, having true sorrow. Um, someone who has a firm purpose of amendment. Someone who's trying to avoid the occasion of sin. Someone who is turned to God in prayer. Humbly acknowledging their need for the Lord's mercy and His grace to persevere. Um, someone who, of course, it takes humility, of course, first of all, to, to admit our own need for the Lord's mercy. All those kind of things, of course, the more perfect they are in those, in, in, in what we're referring to here as the, uh, the dispositions that we have in receiving the sacrament, then the more we can be assured of receiving in, 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 from the sacrament of reconciliation. Um, One other great consolation of the sacrament of reconciliation is that if we were to try to receive God's mercy outside the sacrament of reconciliation, and this this is a good way of answering questions of people who might say, well, why do I need to go to confession? Um, If we were to, and sure, sure, God is not restricted to the sacraments. But let's make one point clear, and that is that if we were to try to receive God's forgiveness outside of the Sacrament of Reconciliation, when I say outside, I mean, you know, joining our own hands in prayer and saying, please forgive me. <coughs> going into our room and, you know, appealing to God's mercy through our own prayer. Sure, it's a good thing for us to do that, do that often. Um, not just when the plane's going down, trying to make a perfect act of contrition, but it's good for us to be constantly expressing our sorrow to the Lord, that we may um, continue to... to uh, to profit from his grace and to come closer to him. but the church teaches that that um, in order to receive God's forgiveness for our sins, we need to have a perfect uh, contrition. Contrition meaning sorrow. Contrition is the Latin word. Uh, sorry, contrition comes from the Latin word "contritio," which means to wear down that which is hardened. And uh, um, it's the disposition by we're able to overcome the hardness of heart has come about by our own symphonies. So the Church teaches we need to have a perfect contrition to receive God's forgiveness outside the Sacrament of Reconciliation. So it gives us great comfort to know that when we receive the Sacrament of Reconciliation that we don't need to have perfect contrition. Even an imperfect contrition will suffice. Why? Because it's Christ himself who works in the Sacraments. It's he who we encounter and it's he who is directly at work. It gives us great comfort to know this, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to aspire to have a perfect contrition. I was just sharing with you before that there's great merit in trying to have, you know, the perfect kind of dispositions that we can uh, can foster and furnish uh, in our preparation and reception of the sacrament. Um, but it's a great consolation for us because how are we to know that we have a perfect act of contrition? We don't know this, do we? We'd like to think that we do, and we should always strive for it. But we don't know. So it's a great consolation when we receive this sacrament of reconciliation to know, that as sure as our faith tells us, as I was saying before, that our sins have indeed been forgiven. It's a great way of answering those people who say, well you know, I don't need to go to confession. I think it's quite a large sum of presumption on their part to say, oh well God will forgive me. Because we've got to ask the question, well, sure we like to think he does, but we have a really perfect contrition. Now, To this, some people might say, what's the difference between a perfect contrition and an imperfect contrition? Um, An imperfect contrition is often referred to with the Latin word attrition, and perfect contrition is known as contrition. Um, uh, Perfect contrition. Um, When we have perfect contrition, that's a sense of sorrow that comes about as a consequence of knowing how much we are loved by Christ. If fear is involved, it's in relation to that love. You know yourself that you, if you are close to someone, um, uh, you cherish the love between you, that you, you, there's a a natural fear that will emerge of losing that person or offending that person. Um, So if fear is involved, it's not a servile fear, it's a filial fear. (coughs) Now you take an imperfect nutrition that does not come about from an acknowledgement of the great love that God has for us and the uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, the uh, full understanding of the great extent to which He uh, He redeemed us. It's more of an, uh, a fear of punishment. So in that sense, it's 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 a, it's a survival fear. It's something which is focused on self rather than focused upon the the love and the mercy of Christ. So as I, shared, as I said, we always do well to strive to have perfect contrition, but uh, it's a great consolation for us in receiving the second reconciliation that even if there are for some reasons that our contrition is imperfect, whether it be to the attachment to the sin itself or to uh, a lack of prayerfulness or love of God in our own path, we know that as sure as our faith tells us that our, uh, our sins have indeed been forgiven. All right, but I might just share one last story. And um, this is a story again related by Archbishop Fulton Sheen, and you'll find it in the chapter, It Strengthens Our Faith. And uh, I won't uh, share the whole contents of the chapter with you. There's, um, You might ask yourself the question more, well, how does the sacred reconciliation strengthen our faith? I'd certainly recommend that chapter to your reading because... Um, Uh, there's every good reason to see why and how it does. But I'll share this following story with you, which I think um, at least gives us at least some insight into how the Sacrament of Reconciliation strengthens our faith. A young woman wrote to me, this is Archbishop Fulton Sheen relating to this story, a young woman wrote to me, she was a college student, she said, I've given up my faith, I no longer believe in God, and I'm now an atheist. Well, I was curious that she should should have first of all written to me. She lived in another city. I wrote to her and asked her to call on me. I said, how did you happen to lose your faith? In other words, I was asking her, what was the scapegoat? What's the excuse? She said, my studies in comparative religion. I was part of a class and found out all religions are alike. Well, sure, all of the paintings in the gallery have the same colour, but that doesn't mean that they were painted by the same artist. But at any rate, (coughs) that was the reason she gave. I knew, of course, that was not the real reason, but I played along with it for for a minute. And she was in my library, and I said, Now, directly behind you is a section of books on comparative religion. I have about 400 different titles on that subject. Now, you pick out any of those books you know, and we will discuss it. Now, glance them over. She did not know any of them, which didn't a bit surprise me. I said, my good girl, come into confession. She said, how can I go to confession? I don't even believe in God. I said, now listen, you're not having any difficulty with the creed. You have difficulty with the commandments. Why don't you face up to it? You've been immoral. In order to escape your sense of guilt, you wrote to me about being an atheist. Isn't that right? She said, that's right. Well, she went to confession. And she was all right. That is, her faith, was, her faith returned. So we can see in that sense that the sacred reconciliation is something which also helps us to be more conscious of God's presence in our life to have a greater understanding of his activity and his presence. Um, the inspirations, of course, we can see more clearly. It's a bit like when we're driving a car. If the the, the, the windscreen is all dirty. It's, a, it's very hard to see where we're going. But once we put on those windscreen wipers, um, or we stop off at a service station and we wipe it clean, of course, we can see clearly again. So I think that... Uh, um, that's one other benefit that we can certainly look forward to whenever we receive the sacrament of reconciliation. It's certainly experienced consistent, especially with those who had stopped practicing their faith, and that uh, in coming back to the church and receiving the sacrament of reconciliation, their faith is something which gives them greater inspiration once more. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics lecture by Father Michael de Stoop. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics lectures. Visit cradio.org.au